I've shared with my children, I said that um, I'm going to be here to be able to cut, my, cut the barriers when it comes to cultural expectations. First and foremost, I go, I will be your biggest champion and advocate for you to be able to live your life on your terms. I have seen the mental health of individuals that may have gone through what we may have gone through. Sometimes living a facade just to appease everybody else because it's always about what will people think? I grew up appeasing people just because when I did, it would make them happy. When they're happy, it made me feel good that I'm doing the right thing. Again, their expectations. So I said, okay, I always think, where would my journey have gone? Where would my life have been if I would have been able to have my own expectations and lived on my terms versus someone else's? Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Imagine jumping on a plane from India and coming all the way to the U.S. of A. That's where our journey begins for our next guest. Adjusting to American culture was no easy feat, but Sarika Bhakta did it with style and grace. She's also a published author and the co-host of Diversity Straight Up podcast. Sarika, welcome to the show. Thank you, Victor, for having me as part of this uh, wonderful show. Looking forward to our conversation today. It's my pleasure. Well, you know, one of the things that I love to do is dive right in because there's so much to unpack in a very short period of time. You didn't necessarily grow up in India because you came here as a young child. Tell us how old you were when you got here. I was 19 months old when I came to the United States of America. We were actually supposed to go to San Francisco and our, I should say, our stopping point was New York. Late 70s in December. So you can imagine, if, for those of you that may not know your listeners, Gujarat, India, temperature is pretty nice. They don't see a lot of snow in Gujarat, India. So they, my parents, did not speak any English, came with myself and my sister, who was two years older than me, to New York in the late 70s in December. And I still remember this story, because my mom probably wearing her sari. We didn't have any winter coats because in Gujarat, don't need those coats. And so I asked my dad, I, I asked him, what did you do? He said, total strangers gave the backs or gave the coats off their children's back to them. So of course, I'm so naive back, back then when I was asking him this story. Oh, so they had an extra pair of coats for their children. I live here in Iowa. And if I can, you know, get out the door with my own coat, let alone worrying about a second pair of coat. So this is a humanity without even speaking the same common language. Total strangers gave the coats of their children to someone that they did not even speak a common language. That was their first experience when they came to America. And then their destination was San Francisco Bay Area. Wow. So your parents hop on a plane from Gujarat, India, where it is very warm. Extremely warm. There is no snow. I don't even think they've ever seen snow 
Danger in Gujarat, India. <laughs> and Danger and they not. hop on a plane with an 18-month-old and a, a another young girl who's two years older than you. And they show up here with no preparation for the weather that they're about to encounter. And perfect strangers take coats off of their back and hand them as yes. their very first act. Isn't that beautiful? It is. It's humanity at its best. They didn't speak the same language. They didn't, you know, dress the same. It's just differences, but it doesn't matter because they H- still have humanity. that humanity. Yes. I love that. So so from New York, they hop over to San Francisco where you probably don't need those jackets. And did they tell you a little bit about what it was like growing up in, in San Francisco? And then what were your earliest memories so I do recall one memory, but I did ask my dad, I said, what was it like growing up, you know, in America? Well, actually, I know you edit some of this out, right? Maybe, Victor. <laughs> we don't edit. That's the one thing about this show. Whatever is said is said. So is make sure well, you get <laughs> Well, so he didn't grow up here. He came here in his early 20s and I was growing up. But it's really interesting because they always say, they're the first generation and I'm the second generation immigrant. I go, well, explain that. How does that work when they came as a first generation, but technically I was 19 months old. So I'm so young. How can I be the next generation? I felt like our experiences were different, but I'm still experiencing things from the first immigrant, first generation of immigrant lens. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I know I've spoken with other immigrants that came when they were adults. Their experiences were so much different than an immigrant like myself who came as a young, young child. And I always talk about those immigrant experiences. They're vastly different. So you ask me the question, how was it for my parents? And then how was it for me? Being a 19-month-old, I could only relay and rely on their stories. And my dad would tell me that um, he would have two jobs. And he would work 16, 17 hours a day. He would go to one job and he would be at a restaurant and he would be washing the dishes. Then he would go to another job and he would be making coffee. He said his title was a coffee boy. I said, coffee boy, tell me about that. He said, all I did was just brew different kinds of coffee, 17 to 25 different types of coffee. And I said, okay. So I do remember that when my brother was born in San Francisco, whenever he would, my dad would see my brother, he would get scared. He did not recognize my dad because my dad was never at home. He was always out working, providing for the family. And I remember my dad said he would always carry his toothbrush with him and put it in his pocket because he would brush his teeth wherever he could because he never knew when he would be able to go home. And I think about that. He even told me one day that one of his employers, there was a strike that was going on. So his colleagues, we're out on the street striking. And I said, what did you do? He said, I supported them. He knew that if he kept on working, he could have had a paycheck to help support his family. But he said, it's more important for me to be able to support my colleagues. If we collectively can bargain and get better wages, better work conditions, then he was gonna be out there helping collectively to elevate the working conditions for all. That's pretty impressive. It is. It made me think a lot about how there's always this divide sometimes that as immigrants, what the perception and attitude 
of immigrants are and what their attitudes were of them. And I always think about how my dad is and what he did. And he said, put me to work. I will have the most work ethic, the hardest work ethic you can find in anyone. And that's what he did. He just wanted to work, put his nose to the grind and work. Yet at the same time, I saw him, you know, advocate for change for better working conditions. Wow. And I'm sure that's where some of your current passion comes from because you've seen that example of someone collectively working with everyone to further a specific cause around helping elevate all of the workers, not just one demographic or another demographic. And I can't imagine being a brand new immigrant really trying to make that decision because you do have to put food on the table of those um, that you love, right? And Absolutely. It's, it's tough. So your experience, I mean, you've obviously heard the stories, but you've had your own lived experience. And I mean, growing up uh, with a name that may not be typical, what was that like, Sarika? <laughs> I was called anything and everything except Sarika, Sarasak, Shakira, uh, Shaniqua. And so over time, I realized actually when I was earlier on growing up, so I was in from San Francisco, we actually went to Nebraska, well, actually not even Nebraska, Oklahoma, Nebraska, ended up in the Quad Cities, which is um, half the cities are in Iowa, half are in Illinois, the Mississippi River connects the community there. And most of the communities that we went to, we were probably the only Indian family, except when we went to the Quad Cities, we were one of the first Indian families. And I have to say, uh, wherever we went, for me, I was always exposed to differences. Why? Because I spoke a different language. My primary language was Gujarati. We dressed differently. We ate different food. Indian was not mainstream back then. It is now. It wasn't back then, let alone the smells that lingers on your clothing and people are like, what does that smell like? We also practice a different religion, Hinduism, which was very foreign to many people. So that differences sometimes is a scary thing. And I realized that that's the reason why is because they just weren't exposed to that. Think about it. Back then, technology was not as prevalent or accessible as it is now. I mean, heck, my kids have their laptops and their cell phones, you know, with them at all times, even when they're opening up the refrigerator door. Right. So what that means, the beauty is that they are exposed to differences just because they had access. They have access to technology, but we didn't. So I've always said that my parents, I said, I love them, but I felt as if they were frozen in time. They came to America and they couldn't even call India as often either. So India was moving forward and my parents, and I don't blame them, were holding on to what they knew of their own culture to help raise us. And I remember when we moved from the coast all the way to the Midwest, my parents, especially my, my mom, my mom's family, they said, why are you moving to the Midwest? Why are you moving away from us? Why don't you stay here? Because you have a support system. Who are you going to you know, call on there? Who's going to help you? How are you going to raise them? How are they going to learn the language? How are you going to cook food? They couldn't even find grocery stores you know, where they can get their food. We had to drive to Chicago, which is about three hours away from where we lived in the Quad Cities. And we were, from a socioeconomic status, we were very, you know, poor. 
So we couldn't make a trip up to Chicago to go and get the lentils and all the other dry groceries, let alone those fresh groceries that my mom was so used to. So she got used to cooking Indian cuisine based on the vegetables that she found here, which to her were very foreign. Wow, that's really interesting. Only because, uh, so my uncle was one of the first people to ever open a Caribbean grocery store for people back in the 80s here in Toronto. And that was because he realized there was a need for people to find their ethnic foods. And I think that, you know, when I talk to people who are immigrants, one of the things they always tell me is they look for things that remind them of home. And one of the things that remind you of home is your own food. So not being able to have that access is is unbelievable. I, I mean, I'd never even thought about that. So you were having to drive three hours just to even get the groceries that made you feel at home. You know, there's obviously a culture shock when showing up here. People couldn't pronounce your name. You dress differently. You smell differently. All of these things that we hear about the stereotypes. Is there a specific memory that stands out as you were sort of going through school? Because I always find childhood being very um, transformative for who we are as individuals and those experiences. Is there an experience stemming from that time where it really sits with you even as an adult today that really defines, you know, a, a time in your life where you did not feel like you belonged? Oh, my goodness. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I remember, so my mom, there were quite a few incidents. One of them is my mom would wear the bindi on her forehead and uh, say we would be walking through Walmart. Before we would get into the store, I would tell my mom, can you please take the bindi off of your forehead? And she refused. If I look back now, I admire her for staying true to who she is, because that is who she was and that is who she is. And I was trying, I was asking her to change. I wasn't even asking, I was telling her to change. And I remember walking with her, I would be way behind that you wouldn't even see me walking with my mom. That's how embarrassed I was. Because everywhere we go, people just look at you. Think about it as a second grade, even in third grade, as a young child, you're trying to form your own identity. And then when you have people just looking at you, you're thinking, why are they looking at me? What did I do different? What am I doing differently? And the reality is just because I'm with my mom, they can see that this is someone that they're not used to walking around. Again, we're one of the first Indian families. And so uh, <laughs> I remember one, one time my aunt from Africa came to our home. This is my dad's younger sister. And I remember she was saying, Suman Bai, Bai means brother. You were letting your daughters wear shorts? I mean, in the Quad Cities, you know, in the Midwest, it does get hot, you know? So of course I'm trying to get acclimated with clothing here. And as soon as my aunt said that, and I love her, if she listens to it, I hope you know that I love you. <laughs> but as soon as she said that, my dad suddenly said, okay, no more shorts for you. Can't wear shorts. And I'm thinking just because someone else said this, and now you are putting that on me. And I also remember going to Adventureland and I had to wear this Indian attire. It was a very thin material. And then when it went on the, you know, those rides with the water, it's sticking to me. People were looking at us like, what are you wearing? What? 
it was a traditional Indian outfit, which has like the, you know, the the pants and the leggings and the kurta. Yep. And I said, I don't want to wear that. And ours isn't the simple ones, the simple designs that are also out there that, you know, people love. These were like the little bit more, you know, embellished ones. It's the ones that you see in the Bollywood movies that look gorgeous, but it's like, I don't know if I want to walk around looking like a chandelier because I mean, <laughs> the stuff glitters. Uh, my aunts, I, I mean, it was one of the reasons I refused to wear some of the Indian outfits when I was younger, for sure. I get it. Uh, yes. And when we had those outfits, we didn't get the ones that were plain just because we couldn't afford it. Then we would just get the ones that are a little bit nicer looking so we could wear it for a lot of occasions not have some that are embellished and some that are a little bit day-to-day wear. We would always get the ones that are nicer ones. So another memory was um, one of my best friends lived a couple blocks away from us and a new girl moved into the block our age. And I was so excited. Like, yes, we have another friend that we can get to know better. And I remember my best friend a couple of days later, she came to me and she said, our new friend, can't understand you. She can't understand your English. And I said to my friend, I go, but you understand me. I'm still speaking English. Why can't she understand? And she said, because you speak so fast and she can't understand the English. Because Gujarati is such a rapidly speaking language. And I had no idea that when I was speaking in English, I was speaking very fast. Wow. To this day, that is one of the memories that sticks to me. And I remember people always say, well, you don't speak with an accent and you speak very articulately. I always took those as compliments. I don't have an accent. I'm articulate and they can understand me. I have been very conscious about how I speak because of what my other friend, the new friend said to me, that when I speak in English, I would speak so fast and they couldn't understand me. So that's something that stood that you know stood with me and I take that a lot just because it's communication. It's a big part of building relationships and uh, especially verbal communications. I want to make sure they can understand me. And I did not know to know this but in the Midwest is where you have a non uh what do they say? The non-accent, the non-neutral, even from like if someone from the South or from the East Coast, the Midwest is supposed to be very neutral. Oh. So I guess maybe that helped a little bit. Too, very so. cool. <laughs> very, very cool. And, you know, it's crazy because some of the things that you mentioned are lived experiences that just don't happen to one person. Like that's not just Sarika Bhakta. That is a lot of Indian Americans lived experience, right, is is having people make fun of their the way they might dress or their family members. And that shorts incident really stands out because, you know, you're that's a uh, for for our listeners, that's a cultural norm, like girls back home uh, in those countries, they do not wear shorts. It's it's just not something that happens. Um, so it's it's just very interesting. Do you, do you want to maybe dig dig into sort of that cultural understanding? Sure. And I would have to say, preface it, depending on where you are in India, that the dress definitely changes. As I've spoken with other friends of mine that live in different parts of India and their lived experience growing up. Okay. Whether it's in some of the big cities, sometimes it's more progressive than where maybe I was born 
and in the in the you know Gujarat or in the villages, and sometimes the cities a little bit more progressive. And so, and that's why I said that India's you know moving ahead. And sometimes you know my parents um, frozen in time, but yet um, those cultural norms I would say is also based on that patriarchy too, as well as those cultural norms. And I'm like, what is cultural norm? And this is where we have to look at it from that lens. I know that you know the way you dress um, it may not be as appropriate. And this is where whose perspective is this? So and, and there's go ahead. a no. I was just go gonna ahead. say like you just you just mentioned something that I think is really important is that even though people live in India, there are different traditions and cultures and. Um, uh, perspectives within that same country, right? Whereas something that would be a cultural norm or a no-no one place could be something completely different elsewhere, uh, which I think is really powerful and something I personally had not thought of until you mentioned it. And I think it's important to say that everything that I say is from my perspective and I'm not trying to generalize for a community that I may belong to just because the differences are vastly different for individuals. That's very powerful. And um, and it's so important. And I know that even sometimes, you know, individuals that are, you know, in Gujarat um, may have very progressive parents. I just know mine are very conservative and um, that's just who they are. And that's been a relationship that, I, that we navigate through and that we have to, as I have the next generation that I'm raising as well. I also think about like how much of this is biases that get perpetuated. And that's another thing as part of this culture, I always say, is it culture or is culture a bedrock of biases? And I've always, always tried to look at that and just say, okay, how much of it is culture, but what is culture? If it's been passed down from generations to generation, that means it's their perspectives, their beliefs, and then the previous generation's perspectives and beliefs. So it's like, it's just being passed down, passed down, passed down. I remember I would question things quite a bit. If I didn't understand it, if it didn't make sense, if my parents were asking me to do something, I would ask why, why, why? And if they said, because I said so, or because it is the way it is, when they say it is the way it is because that's always been done, to me, I realized that it was passed down to them and they don't know either, but they just knew that this is something that wasn't Definitely. And so I think part of my journey is starting to really understand I have a lot of these learned behaviors that have been conditioned over decades for me that I'm at a point now from my journey, I'm really assessing and I'm unlearning some of it and really trying to take a step back in terms of, is it their beliefs that were passed down from generations to generations? One I'll tell you is uh, having such a strong anti-Islam beliefs growing up. Mm. And uh, it didn't feel good to me then, and it definitely doesn't feel good to me now. Yeah. And those are the things, those are the topics that I have with my family, not all my family members, okay? It's just, you know, those are the kind of conversations we have about religion. That's something I've had a growth journey. One of my best friends um, invited me to, you know, come to vacation Bible school when I was young. And I love that idea. And I said, but my dad is going to say no. Oh my goodness, Victor, was I so wrong? Because my dad said, go. I'm like, you're a devout Hindu. I thought that you would really be like, no, 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 you are not going to go. But he said, go. 
And so that's probably one aspect that I remember growing up is being able to learn a lot about uh, different religions, especially Christianity. And something that, again, has shaped me in the sense that being open to um, differences around me has always been part of who I am. I think that's that exposure to differences allows you to enhance your cultural competency. But I've also realized that I can't take that for granted because if I, you know, I was born in India, but what if I was raised in India versus me being born in India and coming to America at an early age where I was just exposed to differences because that's what my parents brought me here. And I look back, I said, because of that, I was just, my cultural competency is just at a higher level. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we connected on, right? Is just understanding cultural competency. I think that's something that, you know, we get wrapped up in one thing or the other. But if we can really take it out to 30,000 feet and look at this thing at a global perspective, uh, you know, it's a very large problem and it's a lot more nuanced than most people think. You, you mentioned a point about religion, which I really like if you're open to it, because, you know, my family growing up, devout Hindus. And, you know, when I decided to to get married, uh, it was someone from a Muslim background. And there was even conversations that were had in, you know, the 21st century around, you know, the age old conversation around Hindus and Muslims. Right. And that's uh-huh. it's so strange to me how. That's even still a thing, you know, in the 21st century. Absolutely. I you know it's mind boggling, but growing up in the Quad Cities, especially being around uh, my aunties, you know, anyone that was my mom's age, we would call them aunties and uh, being privy to their conversations. And um, not just once, not just twice, but, you know, quite a few times I would always hear conversations where they would say, well, I don't want my, you know, my son or daughter to, you know, bring home a BMW. And um, didn't come from a rich family, have, but I'm also not really great car with cars, if anyone knows me. But I knew a BMW. I said, isn't that a little bit prestigious brand? Or at least, you know, you need more money to be able to get that. You know, that's a little kid thinking that in our in our head. Found out that when they were talking, BMW was code word for I don't want to have my son or daughter bring home someone as a life partner who is black, Muslim, or white. Wow. And growing up, you know, when you're thinking about um, that, dating was a (laughs) no-no. Dating was a no-no. There will be things I will never share here ever. ever. As they they should. (laughs) As they should. Whichever. I, you know, I remember even prom for that matter. Uh, my parents did not want me to go to prom. Uh, and uh, I ended up going to prom just because I was staying at my friend's place. And uh, I was able to go just because of that mechanism, staying at my friend's house overnight and being able to be in their care. And I was able to go to prom with a group of friends. But navigating things sometimes felt so sneaky. And I think that's where I'm like, I'm not a bad person. I'm just trying to live a life like everybody else around me. But it was so different that I felt when I was going against certain things or certain norms or certain expectations. Well, yeah, and you're, you're, 
Whereas all my friends' parents were like, no, this is okay, this should, but I understand parents have different value systems. And I well, and that's the thing. That You're trying well. to fit in and belong in the new society and culture, and, and, and your family is stuck oh, in traditional, yes. you know, <laughs> our girls don't go out past a certain time, they don't go to these types of things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which are normal cultural beliefs that are ingrained interculturally between our respective backgrounds right and that's really challenging because i face some of those challenges even being a boy right where it's like you can't go to a sleepover and i'm mm-hmm. like why everyone else gets to sleep over right but it's those cultural mm-hmm. norms right how are you doing that differently with your children now oh, that's a great question They have good intentions. That's not it. I always think about intentions versus impact. And this is where I'm reflecting a lot in life's journey. So when it comes to my children, I said, you know what? Even these expectations I should not have. I said, but if you can do these two things, be kind to yourself and give back to your community. Be kind to yourself, give back to your community. If you do those two things, I think that in life, things will balance out for them, right? That's beautiful. I, I absolutely love that. I love that. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to cheat here because I know a story that I'm going to ask you about. And uh, it's only because we've had a prior a few prior conversations because, you know, with this course, we're engaged in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. You also are engaged in that same work. And we connected because you have an awesome thought process. And, you know, I love meeting awesome people and having conversations around things that matter. And in one of those private discussions, you shared with me an incident that caused you to help a friend create a family foundation um, to honor the memory of this friend's husband. The situation that occurred was so tragic and heartbreaking. When I heard it, I knew that we needed to share this story with people so that they could really understand what it's like to live in this skin and try to feel a sense of belonging, but sometimes things just don't work out. Can you tell me about that story and share with the audience what it was like to be connected to it, to bear witness to it, and then the beautiful thing that came out of it. Yes. Um, well, this woman is remarkable. And I actually got to know her through good friends of mine here because I did not know her at that time when the incident happened, the tragedy had happened. Sunena Dumala, her husband, uh, 
Srinivas Kuchibotla was uh, shot and killed in a hate crime in Olathe, Kansas. And um, I have dear friends here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that knew both of them when they used to live here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And then they moved to Kansas, to Olathe, Kansas. And that's where um, I got to know her after the tragedy. It was part of that Power of Superwoman, the anthology book that I was part of. I wanted to tap her story because empowering woman is something that I, I, it's in my blood. I want to do it because I appreciate those around me that empower me. And so I had asked a couple of my friends here, I said, would you be able to help me by putting me in contact with Sunana? As I wanted to have her help write the foreword for the anthology book, Power of Superwoman. And that's how I got to know her, is through that collaborative project. And through that, um, she created, or so I got to know her through that, but getting to know her, I was tapped into some of the initiatives that she was already doing, because there was a documentary called Do We Belong? If you get a second, um, I recommend to you and your listeners to really go out and just Google it, Do We Belong? The documentary that Sunina did about this experience, this tragedy. Um, I admire her because she's using this to channel it in a way to impact change in a positive way. And I can't even imagine being in her shoes, losing the love of her life, her best friend, trying coming from India, both as immigrants, and wanting to be able to pursue the American dream. And um, she came on his visa as well. So when that had happened, even her visa status, you know, was in question. And it's still, you know, she's going through all that, navigate through that. But um, Do We Belong documentary is um, something that's extremely powerful. But she had asked, I would love to be able to uh, show this documentary and have a community dialogue. Sarika, can you help us be able to do some of this in, you know, in Iowa? And I, you know, um, connected with a couple of my good friends here that are her good friends. And we all said, yes, we want to do this. The only way that we can impact change is to be able to have a dialogue. After watching a documentary, then we have a community dialogue. We have a panel discussion and open up to the community. Create safe spaces to have a conversation. Crucial, courageous conversations. And that is what we did in a couple of the places. And then after that, um, she had reached out to me. She said, I am going to create a foundation called Forever Welcome Foundation. I'd love for you to consider being on the board. And I am, uh, I admire her and uh, her tenacity and her bravery and her courage to use her platform in a manner to be able to impact change and be able to share the story that Forever Welcome is for anyone who's trying to come to America or in America, you will always be welcomed. And so it's through awareness and education and through training and through outreach, um, we wanna be able to um, help create communities that are gonna be forever welcoming for anybody of any background. And so this is a foundation that um, it, you know she's created and I'm a part of the inaugural board and helping to create the, the foundation from, from scratch. And for me, those are the type of um, 
impactful uh, service that I want to do. People always ask me, what makes you choose what you want to serve on in a board capacity? I said, it has to call to my heart. It has to speak to my heart. It's definitely not a resume builder. What are we doing in this lifetime, right? And so I said, my, my causes that I support is because they're doing impactful, life-saving mission work out there. And so I love the grassroots efforts. And so um, thank you for asking. I, uh, again, we're in the infancy stages, still trying to get our 501c3 status, but we work with others to be able to, you know, continue to uh, collaborate and drive impact. But again, um, I love the grassroots. For me, that's where a lot of the change can happen and people can make a difference at that level. Definitely. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where when I heard the work that you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, I thought to myself, you know, just the same thing. Like if you're going to do something, why not build belonging? Why not try to make impact from tragedy? Um, you know, because we can't go back and change these things. I mean, I was just a couple of weeks ago, there was a uh, Muslim family walking just outside and, and they were run over by a gentleman in, a, in an SUV and, and killed four and one survived. And it's just such tragic events when you were just walking in the skin that you're in and you have to face this type of hate. Is There's no other way to put it. Are you able to tell us, the listeners, in your words, um, what happened that day? Which day? Uh, with the, how the gentleman passed. Oh, well, it was really my friends uh, who are their dear friends here. Yep. It was all on WhatsApp, but they were talking about it. And again, they're connected. And that's how I knew about it is that my dear friends here are their dear friends. Woke up in the morning through all these uh, chats on WhatsApp and I'm like, what's going on? And just wanted to be there for them. And um, in whatever way that I can. And I think that um, for some, because we were having conversations, we were getting together, supporting each other, they um, realized that um, they need to do more. And it's, it, it's uh, sometimes I think the tragedy uh, makes people think a lot about life and the silver lining is that they realized, um, some of them, that we need to do more. Again, I always wonder that it's the tragedies that sometimes make people, it makes them want to do something, right? Yeah. I'm not here to judge. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was interesting. I was actually training um, that day later uh, for our college uh, admin faculty and staff, and it was on, you know, unconscious bias. And um, throughout the morning, I was also checking my, you know, my WhatsApp, making sure, you know, friends are doing okay as much as, you know, they can under these circumstances. And here I'm talking, I'm talking, training about unconscious bias. And I'm like thinking about how much did, you know, unconscious bias have a play in this situation, this incident? Or, and it, or was it other things? Was it mental health? And I, I always think about that. I'm like, are we just jumping to conclusions because that's where our mind goes first? Or there were there other elements. And so, again, I, it was just me just thinking out loud about so many things. And, again, I'm not in, an, in anyone's shoes, so I will never know that, right? I think that's beautiful. Um, you know, uh, very few people will take themselves 
out of the equation and, and look at things from that multiple perspectives and having a different perspective like this individual who committed this crime to your friend or your friend's friend, like what was their mental state? What were they dealing with? What did they see when they saw this other individual that looked different than them? And why did they do what they did? Right. And you having the ability yeah, yeah. to think that is, is just amazing. I, you know, but it, it's still, it, it, it's hard. It, it's hard because sometimes I think about, um, you know, when the tragedies happen and then you see the victim's family forgiving the other party. And I've always thought, wow, what compassion they have for being able to do that. Would I be able to do that, right? Again, I'm not, I've never been in a situation where I've had to be placed in that. But I think about that. And it's just... Getting deep here. We are getting deep, but, <laughs> that, but, but that's, that's where we go. I mean, what's, what's running through your mind right now? I'm, what's running through my mind is that there's just so much divisiveness and just so much hate that is going on in this world. I'm a global citizen, and I feel like wherever I turn, there's differences that are going to be there. But it's those differences should be what we should be celebrating, but it's those differences that people find divisive. And I guess I can't comprehend that aspect of it. For me, I think that if you have a different religion, you have a different faith, or you belong to another community, I want to be able to get to know them. I want to hear your perspective. I want to hear your side of the story. And uh, that's what's going to my head. I'm just thinking about there's a lot around in this world, in this landscape, even, you know, think about political diversity. I always say that's a diversity in of itself as well. And it's all such a charged things at times to talk about politics. And then you have companies that are thinking, do we even talk about politics in the workplace? Do we even talk about, you know, race in the workplace? And I'm thinking, well, why not? I said, I'm thinking in my head that as an individual, one's political identity is just a sliver of who they are. Their religion is a sliver of who they are. Their race, ethnicity is a sliver of who they are. Their religion is a sliver of, they, of who they are. But I think it really comes down to how the other person is viewing that individual versus holistically is that one sliver that maybe is really what's driving them to not like them. Or can you look at the whole person? Because there's multi-dimensions of that individual. That's what's going in my head, Victor. I mean, I know that when it comes to politics, I know that I have family members. I have family members that voted on all sides of the aisle. And then I had to have conversation with all of them. Why? What is it? It may not have been my, my, it may not have been my assumptions. It may have been about something else. As a small business owner, this is what I didn't appreciate. You know what I mean? And I think this is where we can't assume. And we get to those assumptions so fast. And so that's what, I think about it. Definitely. And, you know, it's funny. In, in this episode, we've talked about two things that are kind of no-nos, right? Like religion and politics. And, you know, we didn't really dive into them, but they are things that are, what you said, very much divisive in how they pull people apart, right? Because even though two people may love each other, like family members, uh, when talking about politics, I know people who have physically 
um, gotten to altercations or have had to unfollow mm -hmm. uh, very active members on social media because of the fact that they're always putting out their narrative, right? And it's it's challenging. It is challenging. At the same time, we have to understand and respect that if you're going to engage with that individual, you're going to interact with that individual or coming into work with them or um, being in front of a screen like this, we can't expect them to hide that piece of their sliver of their identity. It's not fair to them. That means that they're not bringing their whole self then. And it shouldn't be something that they hide or feel shameful. I'm a firm believer that you can agree to disagree. There should still be a point where you can still be able to collectively be able to move forward and work through solutions, Definitely. right? And, uh, and I know that um, you, you said it earlier, the past can't be changed. But I'm also a firm believer that um, we need to seek to understand before we expect others to understand us first. And so I think that's where I'm trying to, my head is going more and more, is just trying to understand where they're coming from, their perspective, and um, build on it from there. And they may be here, I may be here, but it's okay. I don't expect everyone to be here where I'm at. I don't expect them to feel as if everyone's going to be where they are here either. And we may never get to that point. And I know that we're not. That's just part of our differences. Uh, but can we look at humanity in a way that's going to um, leverage the diversity, right? I was having a conversation earlier with, with a client and I just said that, you know, United States is the largest destination for immigrants compared to any other country in the world. That means that the richness of the diversity of his people should be something that we should leverage as an asset. We know the statistics out there, right? When it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement or belonging, engagement, belonging, that those companies and those communities that really, you know, intentionally put strategies around it, create that culture of inclusiveness and engagement and equity by leveraging that diversity, they're going to outperform, right? Definitely. You know, it's interesting. You so the, so the country should be the same then. The country as a whole then, if you have this richness of diversity more so than any other country in the sense that you have the largest, you're the you know destination for immigrants, then the country itself should then leverage that diversity. No, I, I I like it. I mean, I'm 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 totally digging it. The one thing I actually wanted to ask because, you know, it's such a um, I, I've never heard engagement before. So diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement, and it's it's crazy because I'm new to this space, which you know, um, I've worked in it in the past, but when I worked in it, it was called D and I, so just diversity and inclusion but now it's become diversity equity inclusion now i hear a lot of people utilizing diversity equity inclusion and belonging and now i've just heard you use engagement and i feel like i don't know anymore what the term is but help me understand a little bit more about engagement because i think that's a really interesting term to use yes uh, thanks for asking uh here at least in the u.s especially in the academias you'll see um, a lot of school districts, K through 12 and even higher ed, equity is such a big, big term for them. And then I've always wondered that how come then in corporate America, equity was not there? You just had diversity inclusion and sometimes they'll flip it. We got to have inclusion first before we can get to diversity. At the end of the day, it's just culture, right? 
But I'm like, what happened to equity? If, you know, through the pipeline, you're always thinking about equity, where do we lose that in corporate America? The last year with the pandemic, uh, that is where that word equity, people now know the difference with equity versus equality, equal outcomes, equal pay, equal everything. Well, you can't get to that until you really look at your, you know, your equity piece of it, because that has an impact to get to those equal outcomes. And so now that's why you're also seeing more of that equity, diversity, inclusion. And yes, you're right, Victor. I mean, I've always said that diversity is the easy part. Why? Because just differences. I said that if I had a twin, we'd be different. Differences exist. I can have a room full of Indian women. We'll still have differences. Maybe not from a racial ethnic perspective, though, but we'll have other differences. So the key is how can you leverage diversity with equity, inclusion, and engagement? You asked about engagement. Well, engagement, I said, there's a lot of talk about inclusive behaviors, inclusive leadership. Really, that's just actions that we control, right? Are we including people? Are we creating inclusive environments? Those are actions I feel we control. But engagement is where we take that extra step and really identify, is that individual or that group engaged? I may be including them. I've been included in meetings, but ask me if they created an environment that I was engaged. I was not. So I checked out. So you see a lot of companies measuring engagement. And I, and I really have this as part of my philosophy because you look at the engagement statistics that are out there that, you know, Gallup has done so many studies and, you know, of it. And there's such high levels of, you know, disengagement. You can have engaged people, disengaged, or highly disengaged. Highly disengaged, basically, they've got one foot out the door. Disengaged, I always feel like those are the individuals that you can you know, really ask, what can we do to get you engaged, right? But that's why it's so important is that we can't just look at our behaviors of being inclusive. We have to really assess and ask, are they feeling engaged? Because that's different. I may think that they're engaged because I've included them. In reality, that may that's not how they're feeling. So engagement is so important. And engagement, I always said that they have that that engagement and belonging for me is, is the same. So that's why when I, when I hear individuals saying EDI and B, I'm like, oh, great. It's EDI and E for me. And then engagement <laughs> is because they're feeling belonging. Right. right? Yeah. So, no, I've, I've never heard it. So I, I really appreciate that explanation because I think, you know, understanding how people different, different people are approaching the issue of DEI and it's a joint effort. Correct. It it's is, a joint it effort. Is. And I think. I agree. And I would say, don't get tripped up over words or anything. I've always said equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement. Engagement because companies uh, do engagement surveys. So it's easy for them a lot of times with clients to say, do you do engagement surveys? Well, yes. Okay, well, see, you're already doing some of this work. You didn't even know it. Interesting. Very. It's, it's a different so, take on it. That's very cool. That's very is, cool. Yeah. So it's 2021. Sari Kabakta, do you feel like you belong in 2021 in America? That is a great question. I don't think that even in 2021, I will belong anywhere. I think for me is, I, 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 that's been from the beginning. Whether it was here in America, I never felt as if I truly belonged. When I went to India, I never truly felt as if I belonged. And so I think that... Uh, in order to have a true sense of belonging, I think I also have to feel, I have a lot of inner work to do first before I can feel as if I'm belonging in any place because I belong where my heart is. My heart is still going through a lot of unlearning, unpackaging, 
So I will feel belonging when I feel like I'm at a place where I feel as if I've been able to authentically be who I am 100%, 100% of the time. And I'm not there wow. yet. So no. That's, that's very cool. Very, very cool. I think that, you know, we're trying to figure out this thing. And I ask everybody this same question at the end of every show. And I'm hoping as a collective group, we may come up with some ideas to help people. But as a society... How do you think we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, and uh, thank you for asking. I think that in order for us to get closer, this is where, as individuals, we need to get closer to ourselves first and foremost. And I think it's because of what society thinks that has that pressure of us not being able to be true to who we are. And I think I go back to what I said to my kids, be kind to yourself and give back to your community. I think if you can do that, then I think that you're going to get to a place where we're going to get much more respect, right? Absolutely. I love that. I love those two pieces of advice that you're giving your children. I think it's important that we pour into them because they are, as I heard you say recently, current leaders, not just future leaders, right? So Correct. I love that. Absolutely. Uh, lastly, where can people find you? Oh, they can uh, find me across uh, social media. My handle is uh, Sarika underscore empowers, or they can find me on my website at NikkeiaDiversity.com, which is N-I-K-E-Y-A diversity.com. That's amazing. Victor, thank you so much. Or they can reach out to you directly, Victor, and uh, they can connect. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know where we're going to be putting all of that information. We leave that up to the team. But you know what? I really appreciated today's conversation. I think it was fantastic. Um, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your insights. And there you have it, folks. The truth according to Sarika. Thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure. Very humbled. Thank you so much, Victor. Had a Absolutely. great time. Very reflective Thank you. time. Had Thank a great you. time. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.